Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Maura's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family at Direct at gmail.com, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Maura Murray. Welcome back to Missing Maura Murray. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing so well. How are you today? I'm doing great. It's a Monday, and we are releasing a two-part episode here today at the top of the week, Monday, and tomorrow, Tuesday, will be part two of this interview with the Prosecutors podcast. Brett and Alice have thrown their hat into the ring, and they've even covered the Maura Murray case. And so uh, now we have them on to talk about Mora. Yeah, it was such a breath of fresh air to have Brett and Alice on. Actually, it was such a breath of fresh air to see that uh, uh, two people could could do something like this. They, they come from a professional background. They're both lawyers, and they dive right into the Maura Murray case and they rose to the top of the conversations that were going on over the past few weeks, and they really brought a level-headedness to it that was very eye-opening for, for us because we have been covering cases through private investigations for the missing. We've been using the Maura Murray feed to raise awareness for those cases. While, while we'll still do that, I think along the way, 
we were not so much in the vehicle that's driving Morris' case, and it got away from us a little bit. I feel like we owe it to the community out there to provide the most responsible commentary on the case. I mean, that's what we started doing this uh, years ago for, and it was really amazing to see Brett and Alice come forward and and we reached out to them right away because we recognized what was so important about them, why they were so important. And it was really fun to talk to them. And this interview is probably one of my favorites that we've done so far that's not directly related to um, a breaking news uh, event in the case. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's really great. And they kind of bring a vibe of, you know, it's safe. It's safe to talk about the Maura Murray case again. It feels okay to talk about it again, which where it kind of felt like uh, we everything we said was going to get us in trouble there for a little while. And so, yeah, and it kind of led to a, a sort of a weirdness. But now uh, now we're back. And, uh, and we're happy to be able to sort of talk freely about the case and uh, to talk with such professionals like Brett and Alice. Uh, Harvard and Yale Law? I mean, uh, what are we doing here, Lance? I don't know. My, my computer almost broke. But the, the Zoom meeting almost shut down because we've had smart people on, but only one at a time. And when, when Brett said that he was a uh, Harvard graduate and then uh, Alice was going into her background and she said a Yale graduate, it, it was uh, like I for some reason I got dizzy. I started sweating. Um, but no, seriously, they're, they're totally down to earth. They do not use that as a way to say they're smarter than you. They'll actually go out of their way to, to say, hey, we're, we're learning just just along the way. We're, we're learning just the way you all all are learning. And and they're not trying to um, say anything's right or wrong. They just want to provide some responsible commentary. And there was a time when I joked about this case being uh, like riding a, a, an insane horse to a burning stable. And, and it was a funny joke, I feel like, at the time, but this is not like that anymore. And they, they've they made that uh, more apparent in, in my eyes that we it's time to dis, it's time to jump off that burning horse and, and get into that vehicle that is going down these paths, a safe vehicle. Like you said, it's safe to talk about the case now. It's safe to guide the people who are doing their own independent research. It's, it, it feels safer now. And Lance, this Thursday night, we are talking Maura Murray on our Get Vocal live show. It's 9 p.m. Eastern on Get Vocal. There is a link in the show notes. We have invited Brett and Alice. Hopefully they can both join us. Everyone is invited. We do these weekly shows um, for Crawl Space. And uh, just maybe a month ago, we did one on Maura Murray. And this will be the next one. So we will use this audio on the podcast uh, as soon as we can. And uh, so please join, bring your questions. Hopefully these episodes, this two-part episode will really, uh, I don't know, make people arrive with questions in tow. Exactly. Good good way to put it. Yeah. Listen to this episode. Know that you can directly interact with them on Get Vocal and provide your questions. While you don't have to jump on the screens for Get Vocal, there's the message board on the side and we monitor that pretty much nonstop. And we also have people who are in there that'll text us if we miss something. So if you have a question, just know 99% of the time we will acknowledge that question and we will ask the uh, the guests for you. So we will ask Alice and Brett anything uh, if you're in that chat room and you, and you want to ask them a question about the case or about their background, too. I mean, feel free. They seem to be pretty open people uh, and anything that they don't want to answer, they probably won't. But if you uh, don't want to interact, you can also watch it on Twitter, YouTube, and uh, Facebook. But the best way to contribute to this is right through the Get Vocal website. 
That's right. It's going to be a great time. And uh, and yeah, more more Murray coverage is coming. So thank you very much. Please email us at missingmoreamurray at gmail.com. If you've got any ideas, any thoughts, any directions, any theories, if you've got any official tips, please send those to the New Hampshire State Police. There are links to everything in the show notes. And also Maura Murray's Blue Ribbon campaign. Make sure to visit the Murray family website and sign the petition to keep Maura's Blue Ribbon at the spot where she disappeared. And when you are considering whether or not to sign that, I would say to think about how little information there has been regarding Maura Murray. There's been absolutely no sightings that have led to any sort of uh, resolution. There's been no clues. There's nothing of Maura's that exists other than what was left in the car and what she left at her dorm. Uh, There's no physical evidence of Maura pretty much anywhere at this time and and that's part of what we're why we're talking about all this is to maybe someone knows something and they can bring that to light but in the meantime all the family has is this one tangible thing that they tie onto the tree where Mora went missing and that is more important to them than I think any of us know that they can go somewhere see something tangible and and have some good memories about Mora Welcome to the podcast, Brett and Alice from the Prosecutors Podcast. How are you guys today? Doing great. How are you? I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> We're doing awesome, and it's so good to finally talk to you on the show in in virtual person. Uh, I, there's there's um, well, I don't want to gush too much, but I will right away. You're the first show, other than Tim and I, who have covered Moore's case that. I felt comfortable with because I feel comfortable talking about Mora with with Tim, obviously. But listening to you guys, that was the first time I realized, like, wow, they they have their shit together, and they're they they're articulate and they deliver the information pretty deliberately and and methodically, and I like that. So I'm gonna put that on my resume that I have my shit together. <laughs> yeah, that's a huge. Uh, that's a huge. Compliment from you guys. <laughs> Forget Ivy League education. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we've come a long way. We we now have been able to grant people sainthood, and uh, yeah, and now this is almost um, akin to a degree. So you can put um you put a little C S for crawl space <laughs> after after your after your uh, names now. Tell us a little bit about your background, besides the C S suffix. Well, I guess I'll go first. Um, my name's Brett, and I'm from down south and grew up, always wanted to be a lawyer. So when I got the chance to go to law school, that's what I did. Went to Harvard Law School law school up in Massachusetts. Um, really just can't keep a job. Been doing different jobs my whole career. Clerked for some judges. 
uh, worked at a private law firm for a little while, and then really decided I wanted to go into public service. And it's been working for various sort of governmental agencies since then. And then most recently, uh, Alice and I have become cohorts or co-workers, co-conspirators, I don't know how you want to put it, uh, in a prosecutor's office. So we've been enjoying that. Yeah, so I'm Alice, and um, very different background. I had no intention of being a lawyer whatsoever, um, and had no intention of practicing even after I graduated, and somehow keep finding myself in very law jobs and actually loving it. Um, so I think I've mentioned this before in our um, first episode, if you guys want to listen to it, um, but uh, I come from an immigrant family, and um my parents, there's no lawyers in my family, and my parents really don't understand the education system in America. So I was just flying solo, and uh, they don't really know what I do, I think, to this day. Um, but I uh, have worked several jobs in the legal field, always in litigation, so mostly at the trial level, um, but uh, have worked on the civil and criminal sides. And now, obviously, I'm a criminal prosecutor with Brett. We share uh, a wall in our office. We like tap Morse code back and forth to each other um or we just stick our heads out and talk to each other too (laughs) and uh i went to yale law school on the rare occasions when we actually get to go into the office these days we can we can talk through our wall so you went to harvard brett and alice you went to yale yeah i think this calls over (laughs) (laughs) And and you stumbled into being a lawyer i wonder if tim and i could like we stumbled into being podcasters. Like I wonder if there'll ever be a time where we'll, you know, we'll stumble into something. Like I just stumbled into being a brain surgeon. I was a podcaster for a little while, and you know, someone came along and they were like, "You seem to understand the human brain. Here's a scalpel." <laughs> but, but to be totally honest, um, a lot of people I know think about going to law school. I applied to three degree programs um, when I applied for law school, and law school was like number three on the list. So I'm not kidding when I said I, I did not have my act together. I had no, you know, defined plan going forward. I don't follow my life plan. See, Alice is much smarter than I am. I couldn't stumble into the law. I had to really focus on it to get it done. But Alice, as you can see, uh, could could basically do anything. If, if If you got enough time, the stories Alice can tell you about the various things she's done in her life are amazing. And just to get like a little serious for a second and then we can move on to the topic. But good for you, Alice, coming from an immigrant family, coming in and doing something and just like not following, quote, your life plan and understanding that you can do whatever you want. You know, if you if you have the uh, the wherewithal and the fortitude to do so. So more people like you uh, should should be thanked and um, there should be more gratitude for more people like you. That's so kind. Thank you for saying that. And uh, I hope uh I mean, as cheesy as it is, I really do feel like I've lived the American dream. Uh, so thanks for saying that. Well, that, and that'll be the last compliment. Now you're on the hot seat. Now it gets real. <laughs> okay. So um, so your podcast, The Prosecutor's Podcast, it's pretty new. You launched it just a few months ago? Right. At the beginning of May. It's something Alice and I talk about true crime all the time. It sort of goes with our day jobs. And so in between doing what we do every day, we're also talking about cold cases and disappearances and murders and all that stuff. And we talked about doing something like this for a long time. And then when the quarantine hit and everybody was kind of locked in their houses, we thought, hey, this is as good a time as any to finally do that thing we've been talking about. Uh, and so that's what we did. And, and we let we 
we recorded a bunch of episodes and then we started releasing them at the beginning of May. Okay. And is this a problem with your actual professions? No. And I guess I should say, because we're always supposed to say this, that all of our views are our views alone and not those of our employer. Um, and basically, the way we've done this is we, we are staying far, 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 far away from any cases that might even remotely touch upon what we do. And then we essentially do this, you know, at night during our free time. Um, that can be a challenge at times when we don't have any free time. Last night we were recording an episode and we were both completely loopy because we'd been working all day. So, but I think that actually kind of adds to the fun of it. That we're loopy when we're recording. <laughs> and for any lawyers out there, uh, you know, we're we're completely by the book people. We seek le uh, legal ethics opinions before we embark on any adventure. There's lots of regulations and statutes about what you can and cannot do uh, ethically. And as boring as that is, we you know really abide by them because we care about our day jobs because it's what puts food on the table. Right. Okay. So um, did you do you have to like uh, tell your works that that the what you were doing? Right. We basically had to get approval, make sure they were okay with it. I mean. You know how it is, and you see this a lot in true crime. You may notice that in most uh, documentaries or any kind of reflection on the legal system, you hear a lot from defense attorneys and not a lot from prosecutors. And I think that's just sort of an ingrained thing that prosecutors don't talk to the media. Um, they don't do things like this, and I get that. But I actually think it's really valuable to have people hear the perspective of those of us on this side of things, um, just so they understand how the system works, and maybe it's not always the way that defense attorneys say it does. Yeah, it's a good point. We do have many um, defense attorneys. We have a lot of uh, people who are more on that in that camp. So to have the prosecutor's side of the story is very important, so you can get the balance of the whole thing. Also, very interesting that the two of you work together. And then you podcast together. Do you ever? Do you ever just like get sick of each other? Do you like? Are you just like? Oh, I don't have you? any other friends but Brett. He's like <laughs> actually my only friend, so it's great. I get to spend all my free time with my friend. <laughs> That's great. I like. I like to think we can relate, but I don't know. Lance asked the question, so. Well, our, our our relationship is so unique. I didn't know if I. I just want to get the like a uh, a gauge. I want to know if it's normal or not. I, I mean, to be totally honest, we. You know, I think people on Reddit are like, you guys talk about your kids too much. But in all honesty, anyone who has kids, I don't think you have adult friends. And so the fact I have one and his name is Brett's pretty cool for me. And, you know, maybe when we start working together all the time and have to see Alice every day, I'll start to get a little sick of her. But for now, I am not sick of her at all. Well, great. Welcome to the party. Uh, we appreciate your presence in uh, in the crime podcast community and especially Maura Murray's community, because I think you did some really uh, valuable episodes and uh, we spoke to you a couple weeks ago, um, Brett on our get vocal live show. And uh, that was great fun too. And I think the response uh, to that and your presence there was great. So um, yeah, I guess let, let's dive into the topic of Maura Murray. Sounds great. Let's do it. Right. So, so you guys are new. The two of you are new to this uh, podcasting genre, this this universe, and you decided to very early on dip your toe into the more Murray case in the community. What was it about the case that got you started on that? And what was your reaction when you saw result of your uh, your 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 content? 
Well, I think we did that case so early for the same reason that everybody talks about it online. We became sort of obsessed with it. I've been following this case. I've been following your podcast, been listening to your podcast. This is so surreal to be talking to you guys. Because um, I've been, since you basically you got started and read James Renner's book and listened to all of Aaron Larkin's podcast, um, really kind of just wherever I could get information on this case, something I was looking into. And so when we decided to do this, we were always going to do more Murray at some point. And it probably would have been better to wait a little while um, and sort of understand what we were doing before we dove in to the deep end. But we decided just to go for it. And I will say, you know, the reaction was incredible. I was stunned uh, that so many people were so supportive and reached out. I mean, we talked about, and you guys well know, uh, there are occasionally issues in the community and people don't always get along, but for us, at least, everybody was so helpful and supportive, and we couldn't believe how many people we heard from. We couldn't believe that basically everybody involved in this reached out. And I think people don't appreciate this in the community, how strong it is and how valuable that is. We just did an episode on Brian Schaefer, which is another really mysterious case. And I told somebody that... Um, uh, that's actually involved in this case, that if, if the people following Mara Murray were following Brian Schaefer, there would be like a, a diagram of that bar with every exit marked and a paragraph on every single door and whether or not it was covered by a camera and what the camera saw. But you don't have that in that case. And it's because you don't have people like you guys and people that we see on Reddit and Twitter and James Renner and all the rest really digging into it. So I think it's a unique community and... I don't know. I hope we find out what happened to Maura Murray one day, but I think if we do, it will be because of the community and the passion that exists there. Yeah, I have to say, um, oftentimes I can't make it through many of the true crime podcasts or documentaries about whatever case you want to talk about because I get frustrated with all of the conspiracy theories and um, fighting about seemingly insignificant facts. Um, and I thought, you know what, if we're going to dive into this podcast world, let's address those head on. You know, uh, it's it's fun to talk about conspiracy theories, but it doesn't actually move the ball forward in what we hope to accomplish, which is shed new light that is helpful in ultimately solving um, cases like Mora's. I think we actually recorded Mora, um, Mora's episodes before we released any episodes. So we had no idea anyone would listen to our podcasts at all. So it was not an attention grab or anything like that. We just thought this is such an important case and has so many people weighing in. Oftentimes, we felt like we're um, fixating on parts that uh, were not helpful necessarily for moving the case forward. Um, you all excluded, of course. But um, uh, so that's why we del delved into it. We just really were interested in it. Great. Yeah, I really like how you guys build upon what's out there. Like you guys uh, talk to people and, and even respond to things that came in on Twitter as a response to your episodes. And uh, and I think that's great. And, you know, I, I think you guys helped inspire us to want to do more coverage, too, because I think we kind of got into a place where it's just easier sometimes to do other cases for us because it's it doesn't come with the same headache. Um, but uh, I think seeing the response and, and the community, um, out there and the positivity, I think we, we kind of have no choice, but to, um, be a little more active and kind of get, take that role back a little bit, um, as far as, uh, 
producing more. Well, that's really nice of you to say, because uh, we need you guys out there. Well, you know what? That kind of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of this, which is Tim and I kind of got lost in the um the the muck a little bit. We got stuck in the in the mud a little bit of all of this. Simultaneously, we had the opportunity to cover other cases through private investigations for the missing Bruce Maitland's nonprofit. So we get so many cases that are emailed to uh, PIs for the missing and we have a, a really solid team that vets them and, and then they'll send us information and they'll say, do you want to have this, you know, feature this case, have this person on. And we were in a very fortunate position to have people working with us on that and able to reach out to family members and private investigators, law enforcement journalists so we were able to use the the popular platform that the show's on to spread the word and raise awareness for other missing people so we we had an alternative which was really fortunate uh and but at the same time there was this incredible i mean just like like i think about last year at this time and then six months before then and then six months before then and even you know six months ago uh that there was always the could it get any crazier moments that we would have? Like, could this get any crazier? Did you, did you ever think that Tom Arnold would be weighing in on Twitter about something that James Renner said? And we're like, nope, it can't get any crazier. And then you wait like two months and it gets crazier. And really, it got to that fever pitch like a month ago. And then you you two came out, of, came out of nowhere and it was like, oh, my God, this is what the case is. This is the case. We have to get back to that. We have to start talking about these things. Tim texted me today and he was just like, we, we have to just – it was a great metaphor. I love metaphors. And he said, um, you know, they're, basically we're going down one path that's leading to a dead end. We have to back up and we have to, we have to look at the paths again. We have to figure out what's the next path to go down and, and explore these things. And the paths are the details of the case, not – not not the the garbage that's out there it's the details of the case and if you if you know anything about cold cases and how they're dealt with by police officers they often do exactly that so they've had one guy who's been on the case for a really long time and he knows the case really well but he's kind of run up against a wall right so then they bring in a new guy and that guy starts from the very beginning and he goes through the case all over again from the very beginning with a fresh look and without the same sort of preconceived notions. And if you do that enough times, enough times, every person who looks at it is going to see something a little bit different. And some people have asked us at various times, why are you doing this case or why are you doing that case? That case has been covered a thousand times. But we really believe that, number one, you never know who might be listening and you never know what they might bring to it. But also just a fresh set of eyes on these things is important. And I think you guys doing that and sort of going back to the basics and going back to the beginning with everything you've learned and everything you know going through it like that could be incredibly valuable. Cool. Yeah, I think I think we need to do that. We need to start from the beginning and um, go back and and consider the idea that Mora never left the state of Massachusetts. You know, I don't know. I mean, I think there's no there's no evidence to suggest she wasn't necessarily. But I also look to the missing poster um, from Namus, and it says you it says Amherst, Massachusetts, last seen. So it, it's not taking Butch Atwood's uh, sighting as gospel, I guess. All right, we're getting into it. well it's a solid point because um one of my favorite articles written on the case was about butch atwood um being very uh regretful he lamented the events of that night 
And he said that, and actually it might not have been from that article. It might've been from another one, but um, it, I think it was a Caledonian record newspaper article where he said um, when he first saw the picture of Mora, he didn't rec- he said that wasn't the person by the car. He, he was shown the picture and he said, that's not the person I saw. And then later on he was thinking about it and he said, well, you know what? It probably was. She just had her hair back in the picture and she looked a bit disheveled from the accident. So she was, she was uh, shaken up from the accident. So he, he mistook her. But then you see that missing poster and it says last seen UMass. I mean, last seen Amherst, Massachusetts. And so that, you know, that gives you a little bit of pause, I think. I was going to say, we, we talk about this all the time where um, when we interview witnesses, they often uh, change their stories, not because they're lying or anything, but because later on a case becomes significant, a question becomes significant, and people are very impressionable, right? Um, if you look at a picture at first, you're like, that doesn't, that doesn't look familiar to me, but you don't know that you are giving a comment on what will become the most famous missing person case in America. And so later on, when you're thinking about it, you really want to be helpful, and you could think, well, who else could it be if it's her car? People typically drive their own cars. And so, I mean, that's, it's, it's so difficult when you try to dive into why witness testimony changes and what they think at that time, especially when you give them some time to think about it. There's media coverage um, and other people have talked to them about it, right? Yeah, memory is so pliable. And I think people don't even, even though we understand that better now than we used to, and people know that witness statements and eyewitness testimony is not always as good as you would like it to be. But memory is pliable to the point that people confess to crimes they didn't commit and actually believe they, they did it because they've been convinced, you know, in interrogation that actually, yeah, they were there and, oh yeah, that did happen. Um, so I think you're, you're right to, to sort of question everything. I don't think there's anything wrong with questioning everything. Um, I do think you have to sort of take, Take yourself wherever the evidence carries you. Um, but we had a guy, you know, as we were finishing up, who sent us, I think, 23 reasons that Butch Atwood was actually the person who, who killed Maura Murray. So, you know, it's out there. <laughs> of course. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think these early articles um, are something interesting to revisit, too. And that's something that's on our uh, docket, something to, to go over. And, uh, and Brett, I noticed uh, on Twitter, I think it's you that runs the Twitter account. Um, who who said that you kind of have to sometimes take those early articles with a grain of salt because, um, as we know, um, journalism isn't always uh, 100% spot on, and there are often errors that are made, sometimes little ones in the articles, but when you look at a lot of articles and there's a little difference here and there, it starts to seem like a bigger deal maybe. Yeah, and I think there's two sides to that coin. On the one hand, the you know, the first statement you get is often the one that's most accurate in some ways, right? Because it's closest in time. It doesn't have what Alice was saying where you've decided for whatever reason that what you thought had happened wasn't really what happened and so you change your story. And man, do we see that throughout this case? I mean you mentioned Butch Atwood, but obviously the famous smoking a cigarette thing from Westman, you know, she initially, that's what she says. She sees somebody smoking a cigarette and then eventually she changes her view. Well, does she change it because she realized there wasn't someone there or is it one of those things where everybody tells her there was only one person in the car? And so she says, okay, well, I guess they weren't smoking a cigarette. And on the newspaper things, I think it's valuable to look at them, but I think you should always remember, particularly on little details that they often are wrong and 
A lot of conspiracy theories have been started based on small details and confusions and inconsistencies. We, one of them on, that's going around Twitter right now is Kathleen called um, her father from Mora's dorm room, right? I think that's what it says in one of those Caledonia record um, articles. And if that's true, that seems like a strange thing, right? Why was she there? Um, had she been there before? Like all sorts of questions are raised by that. I think most likely, the most likely answer is the reporter just got that slightly wrong. But I think it's worth looking into. And one anecdote, you know, we deal with press releases a lot. We deal with um, not actually being able to comment on newspaper articles about our cases. Uh, I've never read a single uh, newspaper article about one of the cases I'm working on that's 100% accurate. And part of it is because you have to write uh, a journalistic story that people want to read, right? And so if it helps you a little and you think it's a fact that will help tell the story and you're not trying to misrepresent the facts, you're just simply trying to build um, an understanding for the reader so they recognize where the story's going, they'll do it. They're not trying to misrepresent things, but it's storytelling as opposed to being precise down to uh, the fact-checking every single thing when you're rushing out articles. You brought up the uh, cigarette-smoking man that Faith Westman mentioned, uh, and you're both talking about articles having items in, in them that are not accurate because it's uh, the, the journalist or the, the writer uh, didn't uh, have all the information or maybe was you know misquoted or something. But this uh, cigarette-smoking man... I always wrote that off as like, of course she was traveling alone. There was the faith was wrong. It was probably a light from the cell phone, and then I don't know. Things happen. My brain, you know, starts to think differently. And 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 just over the past maybe a couple of months, I started thinking to myself, that doesn't make much sense. And this is a list of things that I have to admit to myself don't make sense. And it doesn't make sense to me that well. First of all, I've never looked at the light of a cell phone even back in the day in the dark and thought that's a cigarette. If I see a cigarette in the dark, I say that's a cigarette. I don't confuse a cigarette with a cell phone light. And I know they have the little light on the top, but a cigarette has a certain look to it. It, it glows and then it doesn't glow. You know, it, it's, it's a cigarette. And if she saw a light that she couldn't describe, why would she say cigarette? You know, if she saw a light and, and it was a cell phone or a cigarette, why wouldn't she just say there's a light in the car? It might be a cigarette. She specifically says a man smoking a cigarette. Now, I'm not saying there was a man in the car smoking a cigarette, but I'm saying that's on a police dispatch log. That is from the call. That is as it's happening. That is not lost in translation. That's minute by minute, second by second. That's as it's happening in real time. I know it's far away. So if it's far away across the street, 50, 60 feet across the street, so you can say, well, she just mistook it for a cigarette. No, you you would know a cigarette, I think. And you would know if you didn't identify what a strange light is coming out of the car. And you'd say, there's some light, not specifically a cigarette. It's just weird to me. So these are the things that go through my head now. And wouldn't it be nice if we had the report or the photos from the night of the accident? Because usually if somebody's smoking a cigarette... Cigarettes don't take that long to smoke, and you do something with a cigarette butt. So I would imagine if somebody was smoking a cigarette, there would be cigarette butts near the car, right? So the police, they may know there are cigarette butts near the car, or they may know there are none, and that helps them make a decision about whether or not they're going to discount that or not. And that's a huge disadvantage 
that we're always operating under when you're in the true crime community side of this is you just don't have all the information. And I agree with you. And we mentioned that in one of our episodes that smoking a cigarette is a very specific thing. It has a very specific look. And I agree with you. I've never mistaken someone uh, for smoking a cigarette with a cell phone. It, it honestly, it doesn't even really make sense except for the fact and you have to believe Butch Atwood, I guess, to believe this. I mean, if Butch says there's only one person, then there probably was only one person, assuming he's telling the truth. Maybe Maura was smoking a cigarette. It's also another possibility. People say, oh, no, she didn't smoke. Well, you don't know that. <laughs> None of us do. There's a lot of things about her life people didn't know. Right, exactly. So I think it's, like I said, I think you guys, and I'm not saying this is what you're going to do, but if what you're going to do is sort of start from ground one, uh, and, you know, do this case all, all over essentially and sort of dig back into it, into some of these things that we thought were settled. I think that could be really fascinating. And here's another frustrating part, uh, Brett, you mentioned that true crime community were limited, you know, based on what information we have. We're also limited because we have to depend on the reports written by the investigators at the scene. If someone's smoking a cigarette, smoke sticks, right? Stick your head in the car. Does it smell like smoke? If it doesn't, maybe there wasn't a cigarette. If there was, wow. And if you knew more didn't smoke and there's a smell of um, cigarette smoke in the car, that may tell you something. That's not something we can now know, you know, many, many years later. Um, so it is frustrating that um, you can only depend on what what's in these reports. Right. And what about in your experience, the this uh, cigarette smoking man thing? Is this like a common error that you guys would see on some kind of dispatch log? I mean, that specific one, no. <laughs> 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 but I do think, and this is sort of an interesting dance that you do in any of these cases. And Allison I've, and, and I have talked about this some on the podcast because people are always going to make mistakes. They're always going to be little errors. And what you see a lot of times in our day job is, you know, defense attorneys will pick up on that and they'll say, this is inconsistent. You said at the time there was someone smoking a cigarette and now you're saying it was a cell phone, which is it? Right. And then try and use that mistake to undermine the credibility of the officer, whoever it is, who is giving that statement. So I don't think mistakes are that rare. This one is a, is a weird one. It's a weird mistake to make for all the reasons you guys were saying, but are there almost always mistakes? Yes. And one thing we will note, though, uh, anyone taking down a dispatch log or anyone who writes a report, so law enforcement, they know that what they write will be scrutinized later, especially if it turns into a criminal case. So typically, they try to be accurate. The fact that this person wrote down in the dispatch log, man smoking cigarette, it probably was conveyed to them that it was a man. They probably don't put that down themselves because if they just say there's a person, typically that dispatch person would know to write down person smoking cigarette or person might be smoking cigarette, might be other light, right? <laughs> they really are supposed to be as detailed as possible. So you're right. The fact that that appears in the log tells me that they probably heard that sentence from Faith. Okay, but then Faith calls, she says that to the dispatch uh, person, and then Butch drives around the corner and sees this woman that we all think is most likely Mora, and there's no man there. And that's probably like a minute or two later, maybe. So I, I suppose this man could have hidden, but also I don't think Butch ever got out of his bus, and he's elevated at, the, at, a, at a different height. Right. Now, 
once again, I guess you have to go through this. If you assume that Butch is a reliable narrator of what happened, and I think I don't really see any reason not to believe that. He's just a guy driving a bus who happens to go by. That's why I don't think there was a person smoking a cigarette. I think Butch would have seen this person and the fact that Butch did not see another person. And I don't know why that person would hide from Butch, right? It, I just don't, I don't really know why. Given that this would be someone, presumably, who's traveling with Mora for whatever reason. Um, but that's why I think there wasn't a cigarette. Now, if you dive down some conspiratorial hole and it's, you know, a police officer there, you know, I won't, I won't say his name, but we all know who I'm talking about, um, smoking a cigarette, then maybe Butch doesn't want to say that to anybody because he's trying to cover up for him. Or if it's somebody who lives nearby that he's afraid of, he doesn't want to put that person at the scene. Those are all the reasons you can sort of imagine that Butch would say that. But if we assume that what Butch said is what Butch saw, then yeah, for me, the cigarette's just a mistake. Well, I think we can say that there was probably about five minutes between Faith saying that, giving that information, and Butch showing up because Butch's uh, call from his house was at 7.43, I think. So you have to take into account some time that he had at her vehicle, maybe a couple of minutes. So I'm just being devil's advocate. It could be possible that there was a man in there and Morris says, you got to get out of here now. Or there was a man in there and they were traveling in tandem with another car and, and he gets out to maybe wave that car down before they come to the scene just to let them know that Morris skidded off the road or something. Uh, so there could have been time where he could have hustled out of there. I believe Butch was coming from the opposite direction. I, I believe he was coming from like the French Pond Road direction and that was the that was where, how, where her car was facing, I believe, because her car had turned the other way, right? Old Peter's Road, yeah, it was kind of facing... Right, facing Road. Old Peter's Road, facing the weathered barn. So the passenger door would have been what Faith was looking at. So Faith would have probably never seen Mora right away because it's dark and, you know, the airbags had deployed and she would have to be looking through the car. So Butch would have seen her from, like, okay, through the passenger okay. window or over the top. So it was Mora at the scene, but it doesn't take away the fact that there is still so much mystery regarding what the heck happened in Massachusetts. No, you're right. You're right. And that's always been the thing that interested me the most, just because I've always believed that, yes, it is Mora, that she left of her own volition, that she got into that car wreck, and that she then fled the scene, either on foot or she waved down a car. And, and, and not a tandem driver, um, just a random car and got in and went away. And I think to understand why she did that, you have to know what it was that happened that weekend that would lead her to basically just sort of abandon everything and head to New Hampshire.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.